episode of the EMIG cast mini-series, Climate Change and Human Health. My name is Katie, and through the course of eight episodes, I'll be walking you through the many ways that climate change impacts human health. Today, we will focus on zoonotic, vector-borne, and infectious diseases. This mini-series is a part of a scholarly project to explore podcasts as a climate change education tool for healthcare professionals. There's a short survey that I hope you will fill out after listening. It should take no more than three minutes and would be a huge help to the project. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Long ago, Hippocrates recognized the connections between weather, climate, and infectious disease. He noted that people living in some locations suffered from different diseases than people living in areas with significantly different climates. This geographical variation in disease was represented in gastrointestinal infection, tuberculosis, and central nervous system infections. So, it is no surprise that as our climate changes, the incidence of infectious disease will change too. The ways that climate change affects infectious disease in humans is not quite as straightforward as the way that hot and cold temperatures does. Infectious disease often requires invertebrate or vertebrate animals for transmission, which means that in order to understand how climate change impacts infectious disease, we have to think about how multiple different living organisms are impacted by and interact with the environment around them. In this episode, we will primarily focus on zoonotic diseases and vector-borne diseases, but we'll also briefly mention air and waterborne disease. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's briefly recap what zoonotic and vector-borne diseases are. Vector-borne diseases are pathogens that are transmitted directly to a human from an arthropod, like a tick, flea, or mosquito. Malaria, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, is a classic example of a vector-borne disease. Zoonotic infections are transmitted from a vertebrate animal to a human, either with or without an arthropod vector. Lyme disease is an example of a zoonotic infection that is transmitted from a vertebrate host, a deer, to an arthropod vector, a tick, to humans. An example of zoonotic infection that does not require an arthropod vector is hantavirus, which is transmitted directly from mice or rats to humans. As the planet starts to warm, plants and animals have started to migrate away from the equator and towards cooler environments in higher latitudes and higher altitudes. As they move, their geographical range shifts. The geographical range of a species is the area of land that they cover on a daily basis. As animals shift away from the equator, their geographical range moves with them. Range shifts are the first of four mechanisms in which climate change is expected to impact human infectious diseases. The idea behind range shifts is that as vectors and host animals move, it will bring hosts and vectors in contact with new human populations. Range shifts can result in overall increases, decreases, or no change in total land mass occupied by a species. The Ixodes tick is an excellent example of range shifting impacting human disease. The Ixodes tick has spread upwards towards northern parts of both Europe and the United States. In Europe, the Ixodes tick carries with it tick-borne encephalitis. As the range of the Ixodes tick has expanded, Europe has seen an increased incidence of tick-borne encephalitis, as well as spread of disease to places that previously did not have it. In the United States, as the Ixodes tick has moved north, it has resulted in the spread of Lyme disease, human granulocytic anaplasmosis, and babesiosis. The second way in which climate change is expected to influence human infectious diseases is through changes in population density of the host or vector, which results in increased or decreased frequency in contact with humans or other hosts. 
Changing climate conditions affects the amount of a certain species that an ecosystem can handle, resulting in an increase or decrease in population. One well-known example of this is the dramatic rise in the IDES mosquito population after the El Nino Southern Oscillation events. These are called ENSO events for short. El Nino occurs when the ocean surface warms, resulting in increased precipitation. This causes massive amounts of rainfall over the Pacific Ocean, and it happens about every two to seven years. Consistently after El Nino, the population of IDES mosquito in Central and South America skyrockets. With much larger population numbers of the mosquitoes, humans were in much greater contact with these vectors. And due to this increased contact, there was an increased incidence of mosquito-borne malaria. The third way in which climate change will impact infectious disease is through changing the prevalence of infection in host and vector populations, which therefore could change the frequency that humans come into contact with an infected host or vector. Like we mentioned in the second example, as there are larger populations, humans are more likely to come into contact with these vectors. But if the vectors aren't infected, it doesn't make any difference how often humans come into contact with them. Therefore, disease transmission not only requires there to be contact between the host and the human, but that there also be an infection present in the host at the time of contact. After an El Nino event in 1997, the population of the North American deer mice increased in the southwest United States. A year later, hantavirus prevalence amongst the deer mice population had also increased. This is likely due to increased population density of the deer mice, resulting in increased rates of transmission. As the mice became more likely to be infected with hantavirus, they also increased their spread of the virus to humans. Another study noted that environmental changes can cause stress in the host, which decreases the host immune system response and increases the likelihood of infection and transmission. The fourth and final way that climate change will impact infectious diseases is through changing the pathogenicity of the infectious culprit. By changing the rates of pathogen reproduction, replication, and development, and altering the likelihood that a human contact with an infected host will result in transmission. Temperature has a huge impact on the development of pathogens in arthropods. For example, malaria loves to hang out in mosquitoes, but if the temperature is too high or too low, the malaria will not replicate and develop. Okay, so there actually is a fifth mechanism of infectious disease and how it relates to climate change that I'd like to discuss. This one's a little bit different from the first four, though, because it's not exactly a direct connection between climate change and infectious disease. Instead, it's a separate factor that affects climate change and infectious disease separately, but at the same time. And it's a result of human activity. Human activities can facilitate the range shifts of host vectors and diseases, both through human migration and transportation of goods. Humans travel all around the globe, potentially bringing infectious disease with them. COVID-19, while neither a vector-borne nor a zoonotic disease, is an excellent example of how a global travel turned what could have been a local epidemic into a worldwide pandemic. People who transport exotic animals may also be bringing diseases with them. While some people choose to travel for fun, there's also a population of individuals who are climate migrants or climate refugees. We will get more into this in our seventh episode, but briefly, a climate migrant is someone who had to flee their home due to a change in their natural environment most often due to sea level rise, extreme weather events, or drought. Unfortunately, climate migrants are often under extreme stress and end up living in subpar living conditions, both of which can make them more susceptible to infectious disease. 
For example, during times of drought, people congregate near water supplies. In eastern Brazil, this led to outbreaks of leishmaniasis because the water supplies where people were clustered were areas with dense sandfly populations. So far, we've mostly been using vector-borne and waterborne diseases to describe how climate change impacts infectious disease. Let's pause that conversation for a bit and shift our focus to air, water, and foodborne diseases. We will start with airborne pathogens. Humidity is associated with the risk of lower respiratory tract infections, with RSV being one of the most important ones, especially for infants. Interestingly, climate change may actually help reduce RSV transmission. Depending on where someone lives, RSV will be endemic at different times during the year. In temperate climates, RSV often peaks in the winter. Because climate change is causing shorter, warmer winters, England and Wales has actually seen a decrease in the length of RSV season. As far as waterborne pathogens go, there are two main ways that people are exposed to waterborne diseases. The first is through recreational water use, and the second is through drinking water. There is a really complex and interesting interplay between human activity and infectious disease when it comes to waterborne pathogen. As the earth warms, there is increasing precipitation, which results in more intense rainfall, even if the total rainfall remains constant over time. The sudden intense rainstorms can result in increasing runoff of pathogens, nutrients, and toxic chemicals in areas where there is already more dense human populations in urban development. This leads to contamination of the water supply and is especially common in coastal cities with high levels of urbanization. For example, in California coastal waters after an El Nino event, the risk of getting a gastroenteritis or respiratory infection due to recreational water use are almost double what they are in the dry season. Additionally, warmer water creates a more favorable environment for Vibrio bacteria. Vibrio cholera causes profuse diarrhea, and Vibrio vulnificus can enter small wounds and cause infection, necrosis, and sepsis. The same extreme precipitation events that lead to runoff into local recreational waters can also overwhelm water treatment plants. This allows Cryptosporidium oocysts to infiltrate drinking water reservoirs from springs and lakes. These oocysts persist in the water supply and result in outbreaks. During periods of drought, the volume of water in the supply system decreases, which results in an increased concentration of effluent pathogens. Lastly, as far as foodborne illnesses go, increased environmental temperatures lead to increased replication rates of foodborne pathogens, especially Salmonella and Campylobacter. Incidence of both pathogens has been positively linked to rising ambient temperatures, and as many as one-third of salmonella infections in many European countries can be attributed to temperature influences. Now that we've talked about a variety of ways in which climate change is impacting infectious disease, I'd like to chat a bit about what we can do to mitigate this impact. And actually, malaria is a great example. As the climate warms and the range of mosquitoes carrying malaria expands, it is expected that the number of people at risk for malaria would have increased by 60% by the year 2020. However, instead of rising, malaria prevalence has actually declined by 40%, and the predicted spread has not been realized. The decreased incidence in areas where malaria was already present is largely attributable to public health interventions like insecticide-treated bed nets, the use of dipsticks for malaria diagnosis, and the use of artemisins for malaria treatment. In addition to new technologies, a variety of community health programs were created. In Zaire, community health workers were trained in a fever management algorithm and malaria testing procedures. 
They track cases of malaria in their community, which creates an up-to-date database that can be used to manage community strategies for elimination. This program decreased the amount of untreated malaria cases by 7%, while the control community actually experienced an 8% increase in untreated cases. More than 65% of malaria cases were able to be treated at the community level in communities with these programs. Once again, it comes down to local efforts with community members looking after each other to combat the impact of climate change on human health. I hope you found this episode to be interesting, informative, and useful. Just a quick reminder that this series is a part of a project that looks at podcasts as climate change education tools for healthcare providers. There's a survey link located in the description of this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you just took a minute or two to fill it out. Thank you so much for listening. Next up, we'll chat about extreme weather events.